Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was thinking to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. One to sentences in the thought. Don't worry, just do Anchor. With all the portals and everything in a sensible way, you get a benefit. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Bharat Pratap from Lucknow University, and the topic of my discussion is going to be international law in the 21st century. Now, uh, as far as I know, the world that we are living in right now is popularly known as the globalized world or the globalized village. But there are some inherent tendencies that are making some undercurrents uh, in the way we see our world. And I'm here to discuss about uh, the future of uh, a discipline called international law in 21st century. So allow me to start my discussion with an observation by Dr. Robert Kolb. Uh, Robert Kolb has said that uh, born under an unfortunate star, international law has to perform the task of Sisyphus. The most commonly used phrase that we use or that we hear in today's world is that of peace. Now, peace as such is not a natural concept, it is an artificial concept. And who is the manufacturer or the architect of uh, peace in the 21st century? That Sisyphus task has been given to international law. And it is the sole burden of international law to create, to manufacture, to propagate the idea of peace around the world. This is the sole duty of international law. And ladies and gentlemen, all of us are living in troubled times. Now, as far as international law is concerned, uh, it has been given uh, stepbrotherly treatment by the academics. Some people have called it that it's not even a law. Some people call it international morality. And 21st century, uh, the, uh, even the first decade of uh, century, has been very hostile to the concept of international law. So I'm going to discuss what actually international law is and what does the future hold now there are three aspects which are very important for international law in 21st century number one the rise of nationalism in the most aggressive manner possible number two the disintegration of the european model as we know it 
and number three, the rise of our beloved Donald Trump and the right-wingest politicians all around the world. Now let's deal with these issues and see how international law is related to all of them. Nationalism is a good thing, but when it presents its most aggressive form, it changes into jingoism and it changes into xenophobia. And jingoism and xenophobia is something that a globalized world must avoid at all costs, no matter what happens. Otherwise, when we are going to talk about the extreme point of view of nationalism, we are going to have nothing but discord. Because jingoism and xenophobia has zero tolerance for other people's culture, other people's values, and about the point of view of the other nations. So as such, it's not going to create a peaceful world. Second, and most importantly, uh, what has been projected to us as a model peace conundrum uh, uh, or the model peace that's European Union, that itself has been affected by this aggressive stand of nationalism. And the vision, the utopian vision of European Union has been liquidated thanks to the Brexit and every rise of nationalism in France and Germany, everything that we are seeing today. And third is the rise of right-wingist politicians all around the world, especially the ideas of uh, neoconservatives in the form of policies of Donald Trump, and especially the rise of nationalism in Europe itself. Now, what is international law and what does it do? International law does nothing but it performs a very simple legal task, and that is the juridification of international relations. It has acted as a check on the unbridled power of state sovereignty. So, what are the problems that international law itself is facing? Now, uh, in my discussion, I'll start with the basic concepts of international law, and that is sovereignty and intervention and state. So, these three concepts have gone a radical transformation in the 21st century itself. Now, let's start with sovereignty. Sovereignty is the building block of international law. It is also one of the aspects of state. In fact, sovereignty makes the state a state. And sovereignty is considered to be the right of the state. Now, this concept of sovereignty has undergone a radical change. And so has international law. International law, as most of us are knowing, has been created into something that is called the Westphalian format. The Westphalian format talks about the binary relation between sovereignty and intervention. That whenever there is an intervention in the internal or external matter of state, there is a violation of sovereignty. And sovereignty is something that is sacrosanct that cannot be uh, tinkered with. But international law in 21st century is challenging the very essence of sovereignty. This Westphalian concept of state, in fact, the Treaty of Westphalia laid the foundation of state and sovereignty. In 21st century, international law is trying to liquidate the very idea of state and the very idea of sovereignty. Hence, international law and globalization are trying to integrate into one each other. So how is this liquidation of the state and sovereignty is taking place? Sovereignty, as I mentioned, was considered to be the right of the state. But in today's parlance, it is not considered as the right of the state, it is considered to be the responsibility of the state. In the year 2001, 
they gave a report called Responsibility to Protect Report. It was published by ICISS, International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. Now, this report, which was published in the outbreak of uh, the genocidal tendencies in Serbia and Rwanda, they said that sovereignty is no longer what it was supposed to be. That is the right of the state. It is not the right of the state, it is the responsibility of the state. And what are the responsibility of the state, of a government? The responsibility is to provide at least basic civil liberties to its citizens. And if the state fails to do that, then the onus falls on the international community. And the sovereignty, the right of the state is compromised. And states, including the United Nations, have a right to intervene and take care of the following a practice of that particular state. So, sovereignty as responsibility is the essence of 21st century international law. And as far as sovereignty as responsibility is concerned, it is also trying to take into account a new concept that has emerged in international law, something that we know as failed, weak or collapsing state. After the year 1990, the Westphalian formula, where Sovereignty was considered something to be uh, a given idea, something that was natural. It was said that after 1990, with the advent of globalization, with the advent of human rights, and with the advent of a uh, right-based agenda, this sovereignty was no longer a right issue. It was a problem of responsibility. There were two events that changed the very face of international law. And that was the genocide tendencies in Serbia and Rwanda. So, the problem uh, emerged before the Forum of United Nations that what can international community do when the state itself is committing acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing on its own citizens? Can it hide behind its right of sovereignty and say, no, I am a sacrosanct entity and there is nothing that international forum can do with me? Is international law that important? <laughs> so, this was the time when we had to revise the basic constituent of international law, the basic constituent of state, that is sovereignty. So in response to these changing conditions, we have to come up with something that is called sovereignty as responsibility. And sovereignty as responsibility is now a part and parcel of international law. It is now considered to be a part of customary international law. It has been adopted into various Security Council resolution. It has been incorporated into various regional treaties. And it has also been adopted into various resolutions. Now, the second aspect of sovereignty that has been looked into is something that is called subsidiarity. Now, sovereignty as such is considered to be something that is a consolidated form. Sovereignty is sovereignty, it is indivisible. This is something that all of the legal scholars among us are aware or are aware of. Now, this concept of subsidiarity, this has liquidated the essence of sovereignty further. Now, subsidiarity is of the view that there are various hierarchies of powers. There is a center of power and there are subsidiary circles or lower hierarchies of power. So, subsidiarity as the work is coming from the word subsidiary. So, it says that whenever there is a dispute at a national level or at an international level, it's not that you should reach the center of power first. First, exhaust all the lower rungs of hierarchies. 
the disputes can be settled by them. Now, how is it applicable in international law? Everything has not to be solved by the Security Council or the United Nations. If there are regional bodies that are present to solve that issue, the party should approach those particular forums. So this has led to the growing importance of the regional forums in the form of European Union, SAR and Asia. Because subsidiarity is of the view that any center of power that is having the most proximate relation with the dispute property or with the dispute parties, then those dispute parties should approach that particular forum and not the center of power. So if there is an issue between India and Pakistan, the most approximate forum is that of SARC and not the Security Council. And this is one of the most ignored aspects of international law that the Charter of United Nations itself is based on the principle of subsidiarity. If we look at the wordings of Article 33 of Charter of United Nations, which clearly states that parties, member states shall first of all solve the dispute among themselves and when they fail, only then they should reach the Security Council. There is Chapter 8 of Charter of United Nations which gives dispute settlement power to the legal bodies. And it is subsidiarity that is responsible for the growth of federalism in the constitutional law. This is a very less known part. That subsidiarity, which is a basic principle of international law, is responsible for the development of federalism in the constitution of India. There is another phenomenon that has liquidated the concept of sovereignty. And that is called the chunk theory and basket theory of sovereignty. Now, international legal scholars are of the view that Sovereignty can be interpreted either in the form of a basket or in the form of a chunk. Now when we talk about the chunk theory of sovereignty, we are considering sovereignty as a monolith. Something that is a consolidated piece of stone. In other words, the traditional understanding of sovereignty, that sovereignty is something that is indivisible and it is inalienable power of the state. So R.J. Vincent, and the E.H. they have all adhered to this traditional understanding of sovereignty. That sovereignty is something that is indivisible, inalienable, and absolute power of the state. If there are states that are adhering to this doctrine, then they come within the chunk theory. But in recent times, the concept of sovereignty has been made relative. So sovereignty, so those theories that are adhering to the relative aspect of sovereignty are now adhering to the basket theory of sovereignty. That sovereignty is not per se a right. It is a capability. Some states are more sovereign than the others. If sovereignty is viewed as a capability, then we cannot say that each and every state is in the same position. For example, we take example of Canada. It is more capable than a failed or weak state, say Sudan. How? Let us understand this. Now, if there is a Canadian economy, it is taking care of its citizens. It is providing education. It is giving free health care. There is rising GDP. There is robust economic development. There is social development and the social political infrastructure is all intact. In a nutshell, there is good governance and people are basically happy. So, this is one aspect of sovereignty. Now, let's take 
afraid of being state, state, state X. Let's not get political about it. There's a state X which cannot even guarantee basic civil liberties to its citizens. In other words, it is carrying out acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing. So forget about healthcare, people are not even people are not able to save their lives. So if we consider sovereignty as a responsibility and sovereignty as a capability, then state X is not as capable as Canada. So this is the chunk theory of uh, sovereignty or the basket theory of sovereignty. So the basket theory of sovereignty is just saying that sovereignty is just like a basket. And every other nation is having different capabilities. Now, in uh, recent times, like uh, in the year 2016, there came the most radical challenge to the concept of sovereignty. And that is sovereignty as a symbolic form. Uh, Jens Bartelsen has written a very profound uh, analysis of sovereignty in recent times. And he's of the view that sovereignty is neither a political idea, neither a legal idea. That means he has demolished the entire literature available on sovereignty as such. And he's of the view that sovereignty is neither political, neither legal. It is nothing but a symbol. So, first we make an argument that whether it is political or legal or whether it is right or responsibility, it is better to understand it as a symbol. Because if we understand it from a philosophical point of view, before we create any concept, be it sovereignty, state, be it constitution, we first create symbols. So before we understand by virtue of having sovereignty what we can do, it is important to create certain symbols of sovereignty. And when we talk about this, uh, the symbols of sovereignty, we talk about the crown or the scepter of the king. So what was first created were these symbols. And it is through these symbols that we created a concrete phenomena called sovereignty. So this is about the representation of sovereignty. How is a particular concept possible in its representation? So representation was possible because of symbolism. And as far as symbolism is concerned, it preceded everything. Now, there is another theory which has liquidated the concept of uh, sovereignty. And that is Cynthia Weber's theory of simulacrum. Cynthia Weber has laid a scathing attack on the aggressive uh, nationalism that has been going on. And she is of the view that sovereignty as such or as we understand is not the same as it was 50 years ago. She is of the view that the present understanding of sovereignty is always understood in binary. That whenever there is an intervention, whenever there is humanitarian intervention, there is violation of sovereignty. She said this is not such a simple idea. She is of the view that when we talk about the method of simulacrum, simulacrum means that there is no necessary binary relations. There is no positive or negative. Things move around in an uninterrupted circuit. So when we are talking about sovereignty, so whenever there is a violation of intervention, it is not necessarily a violation of sovereignty. Because at times, an intervention into the internal matters of a state, for example, if there is a case of genocide or ethnic cleansing or war crimes, 
and if the state is not able to protect its citizens, then international organization or international community may intervene and save those people. So that should not be considered to be a violation of sovereignty. In fact, it is going to strengthen the very concept of sovereignty. Because sovereignty is a responsibility and it has always been a responsibility. So why interpret things in black and white? Why not consider them as an uninterrupted circuit? So sovereignty and intervention are not two different things, but one thing. So she has coined the word sovereignty intervention without any space. It's a single word. So uh, while considering this, she has uh, used a philosophical device which has been uh, incorporated uh, by Michel Foucault uh, and it is called the Trilogy of Marx, Sign and Trace. And uh, as far as the concept of Marx is concerned, it is connected to the old system of penology that uh, whenever pain was inflicted on the body of an offender, it, was, it could be seen as, as a physical harm done. The second phase that is of sign is something that we now know as the modern penology where you do not whip or physically abuse the offender but as such you incarcerate the person. And the third part is uh, the trace part that is the post-modulism or post-structuralism part. So Cynthia Weber is of the view that uh, in order to understand the radical understanding of uh, sovereignty it is very important for us to appreciate it from the critical point of view from the point of view of post-structuralism. We should not be bothered about the textual understanding of sovereignty. We should be more concerned with the republican aspect of sovereignty, the more democratic way of understanding sovereignty. Now, as far as the structure of international law is concerned, it has been criticized by something that is called the critical legal theory. Now, critical legal theory says that international law as such is not an objective phenomenon. It is primarily a political driven formula. And in order to understand or elucidate the concept of international law better, we should not focus on the traditional meanings like uh, the sources of international law, the definition of international law. What we should focus is as to how international law functions in a social construct. So if we are saying that international law is facing a dilemma in 21st century, we should not be concerned about Article 38 of the source of international law. We must interpret the social construct in which international law is working. For example, we are living in an age of jingoism where nationalism is rampant. So we must understand why these things are happening. Now in 21st century, international law has been divided into two date lines. The world before 9-11 and the world after 9-11. And this is a particular American construct. So international law in the first two decades of the international law has been dominated by American thinking and American politics. So in order to understand the real nature of international law, we must investigate the social construct of international law. And this is something that has been called as structuralism. So rather than focusing on the definition and sources, we must understand the structure that we are living in. Now, critical legal theory has been held or been supported by the views of Marty Koskemi. Now, Marty Koskemi has written uh, two books. One is From Apology to Utopia and the second book, The Gentle Civilizer of Nations. 
Now, in these two books, he has presented the relative nature of international law, particularly in general civilizer of nation. Uh, Goskemi is of the view that what is the job of international law? That is more important. We must focus on the functional aspect of international law. So he is of the view that once we consider the international construct in which international law is operating, we can clearly see that different countries are having different legal culture. And once we understand these different legal cultures, do we understand how international law is actually working? For example, the American legal culture is conservative and is against international law. Because the American politics is dominated by international realists, who are of the view that international law is mere morality. And this era of post-structuralism or critical legal theory is further carried by uh, one more person called Paul Gregel. I'm just taking two more minutes after that conclude. Uh, Paul Gregel has come up with a book called Legal Monism. And in this book, he has given a world map as to how peace can be attained by using international law. Now, uh, Paul Gregel is of the view that uh, we must revive certain extinct traditions of international law. As I mentioned earlier, the foremost job of international law is to create a peaceful state of affairs or the unification of international relations. Now, Paul Kregel has come up with a theory that if peace is to be established in 21st century, then we must make resort or we must revive a theory called legal monism, which has been dormant for almost 60 years. Now, the theory of legal monism that had been expounded by Hans Kelsen in his book, Pure Theory of Law. And as all the legal scholars around uh, must be knowing that uh, Pure Theory of Law in, in, the, in this book, Kelsen came up with something that is called Grand Norm. But Kelsen had a bigger dream in his work. And Pure Theory of Law was only a precursor to the grand uh, to his uh, grand vision of uh, cosmopolitan world. In pure theory of law, he talked about a grand norm or, or an epistemological object through which the entire legal process was uh, possible. He talked about a hierarchy of norms. But pure theory of law was actually his first attempt to establish the superiority of international law. If we read the pure theory of law and we proceed to its last chapter, its conclusion was that as far as international law is concerned, it is not only a law, it is superior to constitutional law. And he carried his uh, project further in the second book, Peace Through Law, which is a sequel to pure theory of law. In this book, he had a vision about international law. That international law can attain its object of peace if we move from state-centered world to the world of international organization. Sovereignty as such should no longer be in the domain of state, but it should best in an international order. It should best with international law. That means sovereignty must best with international law. And it is international organizations who are going to carry forward this aspect of sovereignty. He talked about a world federal state or a world international organization which is going to supervise 
the entire peaceful relations among states. So we are going to move away from the state-centric model and we are going to move towards a consolidated world where international organizations are going to carry out the objective nature of international law. And what was the most important aspect of these international organizations was the creation of an international forum which will have compulsory jurisdiction over all the states. Now the issue of compulsory jurisdiction as such is very controversial. Till date, there is no organization which can organize compulsory jurisdiction over the state, not even International Court of Justice. So in peace through law, he tried to liquidate the sovereign aspect of state by adopting two methods. Number one, as I already mentioned, he talked about the sovereign nature of international organization and he tried to include individuals as the subject of international law. Because he was writing in the 1920s, until 1920s, subjects were not recognized as, uh, individuals were not recognized as subjects of international law. So Paul Gregory is of the view that this theory must be revived in 21st century. It is to be revived because pluralism or the dualist nature has long. This vision of world peace can never be attained if we are going to stick to the constitutional values of a particular nation state. So the future belongs to the internationalization of constitutional law. The, the future belongs to international law where it is going to affect, corroborate and liquidate the very essence of state and sovereignty. The future belongs to international law because it will try to liquidate nationalism for good. Otherwise, we will be moving in a circular way and the points of jingoism and uh, uh, hyper-nationalism and hatred are here for the state. And if we are to create a more peaceful world, then we have to understand peace in a, in a, in a cultural way. Peace is something that is not universal in nature. By interpreting the idea of peace, we have to take into consideration the local cultures and the local values of all the people. It's not that the American way is the only way. So we have to understand certain universal values with their local culture themes. So with that, I would like to conclude my lecture. And if there are any questions from the audience. Questions per se, you want to ask? Anything regarding legal law? Because it was a very inquisitive one. I think one of the longest one, but like one of the most interesting one as well on international law and its own conditions regarding the same which has been elaborated. So, firstly, let us give a huge round of applause to Bhavan Sir. Hello everyone and this is Swati Singh Parmar and today I am here to discuss with you little bit about the League of Nations. We will also touch upon the covenant of League of Nations superficially and see briefly the structure of it also. So as we all know League of Nations was created after the first world war and it was taken to be as a forum for resolving international disputes. Hypothetically, it was to arrange and manage the international affairs then.
the basic idea was to create a permanent organization or a permanent international institution dedicated towards achieving international stability which was much needed during that time it was first proposed by the american president the very famous woodrow wilson as a part of 14 point plan for an equitable peace in europe but us unfortunately never became a member of league of nations this point is very important also um, it was the paris peace conference that led to the signing of treaty of versailles which was essentially the compromises at the end of world war 1 and there were four major powers in this which are often referred to as big four that is united kingdom france united states and italy which dominated the proceedings of uh, the signing of treaty of versailles this treaty included a detailed planned formation of the very first formal uh, permanent international organization that is league of nations as international forum and also as international collective security arrangement uh there were several reasons why uh, the league of nations failed one as i already told that us unfortunately could never become the member of league of nations because of the uh, nation state politics because when woodrow wilson went back and uh, the bill was tabled to sign the treaty of versailles for the establishment of league of nations uh, to to accept uh, um, uh, being a member of league of nations that was not uh, very much welcomed by the other uh, leaders in united states then and that is why uh, it could never become a member of league of nations and this thing was uh, taken as a point of mistrust uh, by other nations that woodrow wilson was the one who uh, proposed the 14 points due to which uh, treaty of versailles came to be there and uh, the country to which he belongs the country itself did not become a member of league of nations so due to this um, it it led a, a distrust among other nations of the world not to become a member of league of nations or to see league of nations no, as not a strong uh, international organization um also uh, the another reason was absence of great powers in the league of nations for example japan germany italy they left league of nations another reason was that the league of nations was dominated a lot by france and england uh, rise of dictatorship in italy japan and germany also contributed uh, majorly in the failure of league of nations uh also uh, the the smaller nations because of all these uh, reasons that i mentioned they lost faith in the league of nations due to which it uh, again led to weakening of the organization not only this there were structural anomalies uh, that creeped into and it also became one of the major reasons of downfall of league of nations there were constitutional defects uh, for example article 11 uh, 
and uh, under which unanimous decision in order to adjudge a nation guilty of having violated the con covenant could be taken uh, there were many many small reasons uh, legal uh, in terms of the in terms of the constitutional structure then political reasons and the international relationship amongst the nations then that um, cumulatively led to weakening and later on the failure of league of nations although i believe that uh, usually the students of international law shall refrain from calling league of nation as a failure because it uh, during that fluid time did job pretty well um, regardless of the politics then regardless of the anarchy in international law then because uh, we do have to understand that league of nations came to be established when the states were still living in the age of what we call as classical international law now what exactly is classical international classical international law is the one which was predatory in nature and it was not basically based upon the idea of international cooperation so international peace security were never at the forefront as they are today so international peace or security the achievement of these two was not the primary focus of states but the primary focus of state was the urge of uh, territorial expansion maybe or uh, every decision being taken in the national interest in the integrity sovereignty the traditional sovereignty these were the aspects which dominated the classical international law era also imperialism still existed and sovereignty of states could not be guaranteed in such an environment so uh, basically before 1945 the era is classified as classical international law and the league of nations was functioning in the times of classical international law which already had so many inherent defects which already had no regard which already had no regard or respect for international peace and security and uh, the oneness of international community also political willingness was not there as i discussed be it case of japan france united states or other small smaller nations or weaker nations as we call it to submit to the principles of league of nations uh, the um, league of nations was basically created by the covenant of league of nations and it was a loose federation of international community of the states existing them and uh, we um, many a times we come across the um, the thing that uh, league of nations was essentially uh, dominated or influenced by the perpetual peace model given by the famous thinker immanuel kant and uh, sometimes it's also said by the thinkers that it was basically a synthesis of uh, wilsonian peace model Woodrow Wilson and Kantian peace model so it was accumulation of the principles of both the peace models and in essence in idea in principle it was it it had a wider horizon but uh, because of the functionaries because of the factors because of the players involved in um the league 
somehow it could not attain the principle or ideas that it had uh, envisioned at the establishment of it. Talking about the perpetual peace model by Immanuel Kant, he talked about hypothetical international government which would lay down certain principles which the states had to follow. And if the states of the international community follow um, the six principles, uh, negatives and positives, uh, then peace, international peace could be established perpetually. And some of the principles were that all the states must have a democratic model, um, states must be liberal and democratic a form of state and they, they uh, should have federal setup and uh, the idea of secret treaties or alliances had to be abolished the concept of standing armies had to be abolished and there were many principles like this so a combination of positives and negatives was given by Immanuel Kant uh, which could guarantee a perpetual peace uh, also, uh, one of the principles that he gave was that one state would not invade the uh, territorial integrity or sovereignty of other state. And this particular uh, principle propounded by Immanuel Kant, we do find this principle under Article 2, Clause 4 of the Charter of United Nations also, because this was basically based upon the negative points of peace propounded by Immanuel Kant in his famous perpetual peace model. Now we would uh, move to the covenant of League of Nations and uh, the covenant had membership criteria. Uh, Article 1 of the covenant on uh, League of Nations talked about two categories of membership. Uh, it talked about original members and non-original members. The, the members that constituted League of Nations that helped in the establishment of League of Nations were the original members. And the members who joined the League of Nations later on after its establishment were the non-original members. So um, the original member members were, were the ones who had signed the Treaty of Peace on uh, 20th March 1920. And it included countries like Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia. And, and non-original members the, were basically um, any, any fully self-governing state, even any dominion or colony could become a member of the league. And this later on becoming of a member, was they, they were termed as non-original members. And they could be admitted if the admission was agreed by two-third members of the League's Assembly and it uh, shall accept the country that has become a non-original member. It shall accept such regulations as may be prescribed. Also, Article 1, Clause 3 of the Covenant on of uh, League of Nations specified that the membership of a state could be terminated by withdrawal or by expulsion. Uh, we do find similar provisions under uh, the Charter of United Nations also. It was also stated that any member of the League could withdraw from the organization after serving a two-year notice and after completing its obligations under the Covenant. Uh, disarmament and arms control was given much importance under the Covenant of League of Nations. So here uh, we can see that 
in a sense it tried to instill some values of international security and peace because it it um talked about arms control and disarmament of course it was there because it was at uh, sign because of the uh, consequences faced by the world after world war 1 uh also we find very important provisions about collective security uh collective security in principle was discussed under article 10 to 16 of the covenant of league of nations and many thinkers uh claimed that covenant of league of nations was drafted better than the charter of the united nations uh we would discuss about it maybe in uh, another audio of mine then uh, it's important here to mention that from the year 1919 to 1928 it's usually called as golden era of international law uh, it's so because it was the time where the international legal obligations were actually followed the judgments by uh, permanent court of international justice were actually effective also um, pca the permanent court of arbitration was established then uh, it's important to mention here that pcij permanent court of international justice was not a part of league of nations unlike the international court of justice which is part of very much a part of inter- of the united nations also now we'll move on to the last part of this talk it is upon it is on the structure of league of nations so uh, it it had a very very simple structure of three bodies one the league assembly which is quite analogous to the general assembly we have under the united nations another was the league council again quite similar to the security council of the united nations and then we have the secretariat which is also there under the united nations so moving to the first league assembly article 3 of the covenant said that all the members of covenant automatically become the members of league assembly similar provisions we have in for the general assembly of the united nations now the functions of league assembly were right to admit new members to league by 2/3 of majority same provision we have in a case of united nations general assembly then the function was election of non permanent members of the council same do we find in unga then um, one of the functions was to discuss any issue related to world peace then to apportion the expenses of the league of nations among the members of the league and one of the functions was also to adopt amendments of the covenant itself now uh, moving on to the secretariat the secretariat was uh, given the function of registration of various treaties under the uh, international organization then uh, it had the function of coordinating the widespread activities of the league and how they were to be carried out by the various organs or sub organs of the league also its function was to arrange uh, meetings of the league of nations now the third body under the uh, structure of the league of nations is the league council and 
as i already mentioned it's quite synonymous to the security council so the functions rights and duties are also similar to that and uh, one of the functions for instance was the uh, confirmation of staff appointments <coughs> made by the general uh, the secretary general also it had to nominate additional permanent members of the league council uh formulation of plans for reduction of armament very important this was one of the very important functions of the league council and also one um important one of the important functions was the expulsion of members from the league of nations this was also was bestowed uh, the duty was bestowed upon the league council so uh, it comes to the i've come to the end of the uh, talk and in today's talk we discussed a briefly about league of nations the basic idea uh, why did it fail how did it come to be established and then we discussed about few important provisions relating to membership criteria disarmament collective security etc and then we shortly discussed the structure of league of nations thank you so much